In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Today is the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, and so we're continuing in Luke's Gospel. We're in chapter 10 of Luke's Gospel, and we have a lawyer coming to Jesus and asking him about the law, about the the keeping of the law. And for us to get a refresher, and for us to ground ourselves in the meaning of the law, and how it's given to us, and, and what it is that we're supposed to do in response to the law, we're going back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the law. If you'll remember, the first five books of the Bible are the books of the law, the books that Moses has written uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and uh, they're called by shorthand the law. Deuteronomy is the last of those five books. It's the fifth book of the Bible, and its name basically means the second telling. It's the second telling of the law. So the second time that the law has been expounded. We see it especially in Exodus when uh, the Lord gives those commandments commandments to Moses up on Mount Sinai, and then in Leviticus and Numbers, they get expounded upon. And then in Deuteronomy, they have reached the eastern shore of the Jordan River, and they're ready to cross over into the promised land. So uh, here they are poised after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness after the law and the teaching of worship has been given to them and Moses is standing on that eastern shore. You remember that the Lord has told him he can't go into the promised land uh, because he has not kept uh, the teachings. He has has, uh, fallen away from the Lord and so the Lord has said you cannot go into the promised land but he has this last task for Moses. Moses stands on the eastern shore And he summarizes the law one last time. He summarizes what the Lord has done for the people of Israel and what their response is supposed to be. This is a covenant relationship. It's a contract. Uh, The Lord will do this and the people are required to do this. I will be your God if you will be my people. And so as he summarizes it, we're here in Deuteronomy in the the very end, we're in chapter 30, and and the the law is coming to a culmination, a culmination of teaching. And, And we get a reminder of the promise of the good things that the Lord would desire to give to his people. Remember that he wants to dwell with his people, he wants to abide with them, he wants to give good things to them because he's a good father. Here in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 9, we read that he wants to be abundantly prosperous, right? Uh, They're going to be abundantly prosperous in all the work of their hands. So all that they set their hands to will prosper. The fruit of their wombs will prosper. The fruit of their cattle and the fruit of the ground will prosper. And the Lord says that he's going to take delight in his people. So all that they do is going to prosper and he's going to take delight in them. He's going to dwell with them and take delight in them. And this is the, the message of a father to his children, right? These are the good things that I want for you, and I want to share with you in them. And then we get that wonderful theological word, when. When. This is very similar to that other very technical theological word we've been talking about in the past, if. Do you remember that one? The very important word, if. Here's another very important theological word, when. You will prosper when very important our ears should prick up oh yes when will that happen that will happen when you obey the voice of the lord obey the voice of the lord which requires what listening to discern what the lord is saying and then to be obedient and to keep his commandments and statutes so keeping means to observe 
Right? So they're going to observe the statutes. They're going to observe the purity laws. They're going to observe ritual. They're going to observe the Sabbath. They're going to observe the sacrifices. They're going to observe all the laws that have been given to them, right? So they're going to keep the law. They're going to observe. They're going to obey. And then finally, they're going to keep all those things that are written when they turn to the Lord with all their heart and with all their soul. So what does that mean? That means that this is not about just keeping the law. This isn't about saying, okay, uh, I want good things, so I've got to keep these rules, and if I keep these rules, then I'm going to get good things. This is not the relationship that the Lord is describing, right? He's describing that our hearts are going to be transformed so that we would actually desire the things of God. Our hearts will be transformed so that we want to listen. Our hearts will be transformed so that we desire to hear from the Lord, so that we desire to see the world the way that He sees it, to see our neighbor as He would have us see Him, that we would really have a transformation of our heart and our mind. So He says, when you turn to the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, when we turn to somebody with all of our heart and soul, we're consumed with that person, right? This is a a kind of a love affair, right? When we're thinking about where are they and what are they doing, This is the way that we're supposed to be with the Lord, that we're supposed to have our hearts and minds turned to Him and thinking, where is the Lord in this? Where is the Lord in my life? Where is He in my suffering or in my joy or in my family or in my work? uh, Where is the Lord and where is He leading me to have this desire to know Him and to follow Him? And then He says, this is not hard for you. This is not hard for you, and it's not hard for you because it's not far away. And what comes to mind here is all of the the pagan religions that would surround them and and the pagan understandings of of coming into um, a special kind of knowledge or relationship or understanding. Uh, This is the kind of thing that has uh, plagued Christianity um, and Judaism for centuries because there's this idea that there's a, a special elite core of Christians, right? That the professional religion or the monastics or these special people have some special insider knowledge of the gospel and this is simply not the case there's no special class of Christian there's no special class of understanding but this is something that's always been with us since ancient times this this uh, expectation that we're going to have to go some special distance or do some special thing to get knowledge and so we might think of of Odysseus or we might think of um, you know the great ancients and Greek and Roman uh, philosophy and theology where they would have to go and and they would have to answer a riddle or they would have to do some great superhuman feat of strength or they would have to uh, endure some adventure or they would have to fight some kind of a battle. They would have to test wits with some sage, right? And then they would get some special knowledge or they would get some special gift from from God. And, And so Moses is saying through the power of the Holy Spirit this is not the case for you. You don't have to go on some adventure. You don't have to go to some far off place you don't have to do some miraculous work but the word of god is where and who who is the word jesus and where is the word very near you so near that the word is in your mouth and in your heart 
So when we speak the words of Jesus, when we talk about Him, when we talk about His ways, when we talk with one another about where is the Lord in this and, and what is the Lord wanting us to do, and we're talking about His ways, and we're talking about uh, waiting upon Him and discerning His will, when we're talking about the Lord in our lives, uh, He is more and more uh, near us and we're more and more able to hear Him and to respond. And when He's in our heart, again, when, when we're desiring the things of God and He's very close to our to our desires into our thoughts into the very core of our being and all of that is so that we can what so that we can do it so that we can do it remember this is this is faith this is what we talk about when we talk about faith or when we talk about belief right the word is in our mouth and in our heart so that we can just rest and have a good time so that we can be set upon the shelf and just be seen as this holy object no, so that we can do it. That's faith. We're given the Word of God so that we can respond and so that we can do it, so that we can live according to the ways of God. But of course, we really want to find an out, don't we? We want to find a little way so that we can say, is that really what you want me to do? Is that really who you want me to help? Right? Because there's some people in this world that we'd really rather not help. We'd really rather not do things for them because of the way they look or the way that they talk or the way that they vote or the way that they live their lives, right? We'd like to be able to exclude these people and think these are not the kind of people that we want to help. And this is exactly what this lawyer is doing when he comes to Jesus, right? This lawyer comes to do two things. He comes to test Jesus, right, and to justify himself. And so if we're going to the Lord and we're praying and we're reading the scripture in order to test God to find some out or some special way that we can live as Christians or to justify ourselves, to feel good about ourselves, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. So when this lawyer comes, he asks Jesus, uh, right, how do I gain eternal life? So this is central to the question of ancient Israel, central to the question of ancient uh, uh, Judaism, is how am I going to live eternally with God? What is required of me? And Jesus, of course, as he does, he gives him back a question. He says, well, what does the law say? And the lawyer says, well, the law says, in summary, love God and love my neighbor. And Jesus says, great, go and do that. That'll be easy. But then justifying himself, he says, well, who is my neighbor, right? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus gives a parable to answer that question. Now, what we're going to notice right off the bat is, again, Jesus doesn't answer that question. Because the identity of the man who has helped is not given. His ethnicity is not given, and his occupation is not given. The ethnicity and the occupation are given for those who are called to be neighborly. As my grandfather used to say, right? He'd say, right neighborly of you. Right? If you did him a favor. That's right neighborly of you. Jesus is saying, this is what it takes to be right neighborly. So he's not asking, who is your neighbor? He's saying, the question you need to be asking is, how are you going to be neighborly? Right? And so we see this man, who again, his ethnicity and career are not given to us, going from Jerusalem to Jericho. Well, right off the bat, we're thinking, this guy doesn't deserve to be helped. Right? He's going from Jerusalem, the center of worship, the center of cultic Judaic life, to Jericho. Do you remember Jericho and Joshua? Do you remember after this period of, of Moses giving them the law and they cross over the river Jordan, they go into the promised land, the first place that they go is 
Jericho, do you remember the walls come tumbling down? You remember that song as children, right? The walls come tumbling down and the Lord says after Jericho is defeated that it's a cursed city that should be left desolate. But what did they do? They rebuild it and they dwelled there, right? Of course. Jerusalem is about the same elevation as Las Vegas, a little over 2,000 feet, right? And Jericho is at the bottom of this valley near the Dead Sea, which is almost 2,000 feet below sea level. And they're uh, entire 10 miles apart. So this would be like driving from Las Vegas to the, val- to the um, Death Valley in 10 miles. In 10 miles, 4,000 feet of elevation is traversed. And it's a winding, narrow road of canyons. Very dangerous. And so you can see that this man is traveling from the Holy Land, from the Holy Place, from the Holy City of God, to the City of Curse. He's going from heaven to hell, right? And he's traveling by himself, right, amidst robbers and danger. This is exactly what his mother told him not to do, right? Your mother said, don't go there. And if you go, don't go by yourself, and don't take a bunch of stuff with you to be robbed. You're sure to get beat up and robbed on that road going to that place. But he went anyways. And we're reading this story thinking, why, who should help him? He got what he deserved, right? He didn't do what his mother told him to do. And of course, we see the priest and the Levite walk by, and so this is exactly what they're thinking, most likely. This foolish man was traveling by himself. And if you remember the Levitical code, if you remember the law that's given to them, not only are they supposed to be keeping the Sabbath, but all kinds of cleanliness as well. If they touch somebody's blood, right, they would have to purify themselves. If they touch the blood of this man who was beat up, they wouldn't be able to do their job once they got wherever they were going. They wouldn't be fit to perform the job of a priest or a Levite. And so... I can't do it because I can't be you know, kept away from my duties to help this person. And so they pass by. And then the Samaritan comes. And this is the last guy you want to be reading about being a hero, right? If you're a Jew talking to Jesus, the last person you want to be a hero is the Samaritan. As we've talked before, he is the cousin who has rejected worship in Jerusalem, right? These are the far distant cousins. Now the Samaritans kept the first five books, but they didn't keep everything else. They weren't worshiping the way that they were supposed to worship and where they were supposed to worship. And so we're not supposed to be reading of them as a hero in the story. And yet here he is. The Samaritan is the hero of the story. And what's even more radical than that is when we look closely at the story, we see that the Samaritan is for us a representative of Jesus. He is an icon for Christ. Because he does what Christ does for us. What does he do? He immediately perceives the need of the man and he answers it completely. He washes him with water. Does that sound familiar? Baptism. He anoints him with oil. Does that sound familiar? Holy chrism for the anointing and reception of the Holy Spirit. And wine for Holy Communion. So he gives him the three sacraments necessary for salvation. Baptism, chrismation, and Holy Communion. 
He carries on him on his own animal, his own burden, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, right? He is the one who bears us and carries us. He offers full payment. Did any of us pay for baptism? Or pay for Holy Communion? Or pay for chrismation? It's given to us freely by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. There is no payment given. He offers two days' wages, which is the Old and New Testament, completely paying for all that's required, and puts him up in the inn, which is the church. The church is where he's going to hospital and where he is going to grow back into strength. So here the Samaritan, this enemy, is in the person of Christ, bearing all of the, of the, of the wound of this man and caring for him through the sacrament of the church. And so Jesus has said, you are supposed to be neighborly, as I have been neighborly for you. You are to care for others as I have cared for you. Not because they deserved it, not because they're smart, not because they look like you or act like you or vote like you or talk like you, but because of love, because of the love of God. And Jesus says at the end, that great phrase, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Just as he had said earlier, do this and you will live. Well, easier said than done, right? Easier said than done. How are our hearts going to be transformed so that we are really able to love those who are doing what their mothers warned them not to do? And St. Paul has some answers for us in Colossians, in chapter 1, in verse 3. Number 1, always thank God. Always thank God. We are to be always thanking God. This is a practice and a discipline that we are supposed to be engaged in all the time, every day. Number 1, always thank God. Number 2, we're supposed to be praying for others. We're supposed to be praying for our brothers and sisters here in the church. We're supposed to be praying for our family, for our country, for all those people and the prayers of the people that we're about to do, right? We're constantly supposed to be in prayer and love for others. And then we're supposed to be practicing the three virtues. Virtues are actions, ways of living that are always good all the time. It is always good to have faith. It is always good to have hope. It is always good to have love. And St. Paul shows us what we're supposed to have faith in, what we're supposed to hope in, and who it is that we're supposed to love. First, we're supposed to have faith in Christ Jesus. So he is the one in whom we have faith. He's the one that we're supposed to be listening to, that we're supposed to be waiting upon. He is the word of God that is implanted in our heart. It's him that we're supposed to be listening quietly to and being obedient to, right? Faith is that listening and obeying, listening and obeying. And it's to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not to the world, not to our friends, not to anybody in the news, God forbid, but to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Secondly, we're supposed to love. Who are we supposed to love? All the saints. So all those in the church, all those that the Lord has given us, we're supposed to be loving them. What does that mean? Do we have a warm feeling about them? I've got a really warm feeling about you. That's not love. Love is sacrifice, right? Love is waking up in the middle of the night. Love is saying, take mine. 
right? So he's saying we're supposed to be living a life of sacrifice for those in the church. And then finally, we're supposed to hope. And what are we hoping in? Sometimes we get confused about this, right? We hope for wealth. We hope for health. We hope for uh, a certain kind of a lifestyle. We hope for long life for our children and for our families. Our hope, our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is laid up for us in heaven. Our hope is in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That is what we are focusing on. That is our promise. That is our hope, what we turn to. And so when we pray always, when we give thanks to God, then we are finally able to understand what He is calling us to do, the knowledge of His will, we will have spiritual understanding so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. When we focus on faith, hope, and love, when we continually give thanks, we get a new spiritual understanding, a depth to our souls and to our minds so that we can walk as the Lord has commanded us to walk. And then, and then we will get these three things. And so often we want to start here. Right? We come to the Lord and we say, Lord, please give me some joy. Please give me some peace. Please give me endurance for this hard time. But these are things that come as a result of being obedient and walking in faith, hope, and love. When we walk in faith, hope, and love, then the result is, the result is these three beautiful things. Endurance, patience, and joy. That's a deep breath. That's a sigh of relief. When we have endurance during hardship, when we have patience and difficulty, when we have joy, that deep joy of God that we can have in times of grief and despair and anger and difficulty, when we have that kind of trust and sense of His joy and love, then we are in a different place spiritually and we will be able to have new eyes to see those that we might think maybe they're getting what they deserve. Maybe they're not doing what their mother told them to do. And that group is everyone. Right? That's me. I have done and probably, God forbid, will do what my mother told me not to do. I am not deserving of help. I don't deserve it. The only reason I've been given it is out of the love of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And when we experience that love, it changes our hearts and our minds, and we are able to love as God has loved us. May we be so transformed. May the word be upon our lips and upon our hearts that we may be transformed by His grace and that we may be neighborly to those who don't deserve it.